Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 101, crossing the continental divide in a vintage aircraft with no electricity, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast. My name is Carl Valeri, and I'm joined with by a group of great podcasters. We have the whole gang here this evening. It's really exciting. Uh, before we get started, I'd just like to say hi from uh, sunny, oh, I'm sorry, from cloudy and rainy Florida. We are under a deluge of rain. And uh, just before the podcast, I was saying how how the water is rising, so it's uh, it's quite scary. So hopefully I won't have to knock off the podcast here because of the raising water, uh, but it's not been a great month or week to uh, fly in, pretty much a month. It's been a, quite a washout. Joining me from uh, rainy Florida also is Eric Crump. Eric, welcome. Hello, hello. I don't mind the rain so much because it keeps the scorching heat down to a, a like a dull roast. You so, know, like, I'm okay with the clouds. It's a good thing. That's a great point. It was only 83 degrees this afternoon. And you and live you live closer to the coast than I do. It was still 90 here. 90. Wow. <laughs> wow. And yeah, humid. That's, that's hot. I was going to put my coat on today, but I didn't, and I didn't want to look foolish with a coat on. There are people that do put coats on around 80 degrees. Also joining us from the, the cold Arctic north and uh, <laughs> from the Boston area is Rick Felty. Welcome, Rick. Thank you. Yes, I have the air conditioning blasting tonight, so it's free. In here. <laughs> well, Rick, it's it's great to hear from you, and uh, yeah. also the uh, we have Sean Moody joining us t- this evening. Sean, welcome. Good evening. I think maybe we uh, sent our rain down to you guys because it finally left here. So I apologize. Yeah, well, gosh, we, we appreciate the rain, but you know what? There's a lot of other places in the country that could use it more than us, so let's try to send that weather that way. I, I was actually just, over in— Just pass it on. Yes, we'll just pass it and yeah, pass it forward, the, the rain. Over in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, they boy, they have some incredible droughts going on over there. You, uh, they're shutting down schools, as a matter of fact, so let's push the rain a little bit. A little bit to the east. Well, quite a bit to the east, actually. It's, that's a ways away. Also joining us uh, from the Frederick, Maryland area is... where? Are, wait, where are you tonight, Victoria? Welcome, Victoria. I forgot to... I am in Frederick. I might have picked up a little bit of my Midwestern accent again because I was in Wisconsin for the past week. Don't you but know. I am back home now. With um, I'm slowly getting my voice back. Let's do the pre-flight. Well, awesome. And the reason your voice is is uh, a little bit dim is the fact that you are out at Sun and, or excuse me, Sun and Fun, Air Venture, Air Venture yeah. in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. That's awesome. And, and you've done some great interviews. I was listening to a few of them. And by the way, we're going to have those on uh, the next podcast, episode 102. We're going to have Woo-hoo. those interviews there. Uh, and as a matter of fact, before we get into uh, our, introducing our guest, we have a special guest this evening who I'm really excited to, t- to speak with. But we, before we talk to, to him, I want to just uh, have an update real quickly. You know, how was AirVenture? 
You know, this is one of my most favorite air ventures. And I felt bad because Bob wasn't there with me. And I'm like, oh, it was the best. Um, but the reason I loved it so much is there's certain people you see only once a year. And it's like you didn't even skip a beat in the friendship. And I came back away with a, a, you know, a new Oshkosh brother and Oshkosh sister out of it, like a whole family, it felt like. And so um, if you ever get a chance to go to Oshkosh and you haven't, that's the one time you get to see remarkable people. And it's like a big pilot family reunion. So I left feeling very tired with no voice because I was up from... 6 a.m. to 1 p. Uh, 1 a.m. every day, but um, I was tired. But I was like, I was sad to go. Yeah, I'm always sad to leave any any air show, especially those where we have the camaraderie of our, our fellow pilots. So, and like you said, there's those relationships we only see uh, once a year. You know, I, I can't. I've never made it to Oshkosh. I can't wait to go. One of these years, I will definitely make it out there. But we had you. We had uh, Tom. Frick and also Larry Overstreet, who couldn't join us this evening. And I ran into Larry. Yeah, they like ran into him. We were like crossing Literally. paths, and like I almost slammed into him, and he was like Victoria, <laughs> and I turned around and was like, "Who the heck said my name?" And it was great. He was quite busy, especially in Camp Bacon. He was like one of the yes. first people there, and he coordinates Camp Bacon uh, there in Oshkosh. Uh, just a, a wonderful little get together and gathering of people that are camping out there. Uh, anything extraordinary about uh, about uh, air events you want to tell us before you know a little spoiler? Not too much of a spoiler for the uh, for the upcoming episode. Um. Oh my. I don't know. It's There's too much. just yeah. It was just so good. It was just so good. And you know, I've heard I've I've heard that from several people online. They were saying who, and they've been a lot that this was an exceptional one. And so that, you know, and I it think it got bigger. Yeah, I actually think there was more people than the previous years. Like the North Forty camping was just booked, and the air show. What I saw of it was great, but like I spent a lot of time in the booth. But I had so many people come by and visit and. Yeah, I'm just glowing with, like, I feel the love. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Booth, I think we should plug uh, the people that you were helping at, at AirVenture. Who is that? Yeah, well, I was working with Aviation Insurance Resources, and um, thank you to all our clients and potential clients who came out. Had a lot of stuck mic people come by, and some asked for some quotes. So thank you very much for keeping me employed. Um <laughs> Also at the booth, we had Turbo Learns to Fly for sale. Um, Turbo's second book came out uh, that Monday. So big thanks to everyone who stopped by to grab a book. Yes. Cool. Uh, Can I get a autograph? Yes, you may. (laughs) Just remind me. I'll send you one on over. Awesome. And hey, where can we find that book, by the way? You can find it on TurboTheFlyingDog.com. It's also available at Amazon.com. And book one and soon to be book two is on powderpuffpilot.com. Cool. And all those links you can find at uh, stuckmikeavcast.com slash 101. And we'll uh, and also on the side column, you'll see uh, Turbo the Flying Dog. And we actually need need to get uh, a picture of the new book, the picture of the cover. We'll put it out there for you, Victoria. So thanks. Woo-woo. <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and with you this evening, I'm assuming, is Turbo in the background? Yeah, um, we had to have an intervention because he was chewing on a water bottle, and it was making a lot of noise. (laughs) Poor Turbo. Had to to take that away from him. Uh, And I'm sure we have some great pictures of Turbo from AirVenture. 
You know, if only he had made it. But oh, he was around yes. flying with his father that week. So there are oh, some cool. really cool pictures. Awesome, Tell awesome. Turbo not to feel too bad about the water bottle, though, because I've had to take it away from Carl many times before. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Just, just gnawing on it. You know, and you're well, like, it's Carl, the cap on, that gets man, really stop. noisy, actually. Yeah, that, you know, when I start chewing on that thing. So <laughs> then I go so to my nails. <laughs> Well, great, Victoria. This is that's awesome. I can't wait to hear some of your interviews. I've I've actually previewed a few, and they sound really good. Uh, so uh, a little you know teaser for our upcoming episode, and the ones from Larry sound cool too. Uh, you've you really got to to speak with some really amazing people, and uh, and also Tom Frick, uh, who uh, uh, roomed with uh, what the heck was her name from. Uh, from Flying Wild Alaska. Gosh, I just it just went right out my my head. Ariel. Is it yeah. Ariel? I saw yeah. her at the bar. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she's terrific. And Tom's you know spent the whole week uh, in the same house with her and uh, got a lot of really cool inf- information. I and I just realized I'm not supposed to. Uh, I, I'm going to shut up there because I'm not sure if I'm supposed to tell you anything about what might be happening with Ariel in the future. But there's some really exciting things that are going to be happening. So uh, look forward to that. And maybe on the next episode, you'll hear a little bit about that. Now entering cruise flight. But anyway, today we have a really, really special guest, somebody that I really admire. Uh, I admire anybody that, that puts in the time to to take these antique aircraft and vintage aircraft and restore them and keep them flying. And, uh, you know, there really are pieces of history. And these pieces of history that they restore, it's not just... You know, it's not just for toys for for people that they can play with. You know, they're they're little fun things. It's it's actually it's somebody who's putting forth, you know, our heritage uh, by by that restoration. And uh, joining me and joining us today is Matt Vandervoort from Vans Flying Services. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here tonight. You know, Matt, there is a, a really interesting story behind what you do. But uh, before we start that, you know, what what exactly, you know, I mentioned, I think, uh, characterized what Vans Flying Service is. But what, what do you do at Vans Flying Service? Um, I do pretty much about anything people need right now for antique and vintage airplanes, my specialty. Um, I will work on a little bit of the newer stuff, of course. But the older stuff's where I have the fun and enjoy, you know, doing a little bit of woodwork and dope and fabric and the like and such like that. Um, yeah, anything from annuals to just minor repairs or major repairs and alterations. I try to do about whatever they need me to do. So you've been flying for some time. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. I think you have a, a really cool background as far as how you got into flying. Oh, yeah. Um, my grandpa got me into it. He, he refused to take me flying until I was potty trained, so I think that's probably with my uh, <laughs> biggest motivation for getting potty trained. Wise man. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and I rode her all over the country with him. Uh, he had a Taylor Craft that is now mine. He just replaced it and got a new one for himself. But uh, we spent all kinds of times just traveling all over the country in the T-Craft. Um, he had a Tailwind for a while, a 172, a uh, Pete and Pole Air Camper home built that I'm restoring in my garage right now. Oh, cool. Um, he had a 41 Taylor Craft with the Lycoming in it. And he, he just... Had all kinds of airplanes, always had a few in the stable and coming and going in different various states of repair and airworthiness at all times. And uh, from there, I, I was actually one of the few people to get my recreational pilot certificate. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I got it right when I turned 17. And my main motivation behind that was the sport pilot either hadn't come out or was in its infancy and 
just starting to become a thing and people knowing about it. But I did it all on my Taylor craft. So that made it easy. I never had to rent an airplane. And I did eventually get the sign-offs so that I could fly Grandpa's 172 and take it on cross-countries because there's enough one-time sign-offs for the recreational certificates that it makes it just short of a private pilot certificate. So it, it really wasn't bad. Um, so that's then I went a, to a and Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that that actually is a great experience uh, for people to hear as far as transitioning from uh, the recreational to sport pilot. I, I assume that you would suggest most people to go right to the sport pilot and just bypass the recreation. Um, the recreational is actually a step above because it still requires a medical. Right. Right. But um, it's I don't know. It's there's so many. It's it's whatever suits you is what I recommend. Right. Okay. And cool. If you're, gonna, if you're looking to buy a Piper Cub and have no desire to fly a 172, then by all means, get a sport pilot, you know? Cool. Cool. So now you got your license, you're a recreational, and then uh, you went on sport pilot. Now, you, you actually fix airplanes. How did you get into fixing airplanes? Um, well, my, back to my grandfather, he worked at a vocational school teaching auto body, and they were on the, they were right there at Airborne Express's runway in Wilmington on a, eight or nine thousand foot runway and they decided they wanted to do an aviation program and found out my grandpa had his airframe and power plant and said hey there big jim why don't you uh, set this up for us so he became the director of that and i ended up going to that vocational school when i was a junior and got my airframe then and went back a third year and got my power plant certificate after high school cool and then and then from high school you continued on as a mechanic uh no from high school i jo- went and joined the marine corps oh. and uh all things I did ground electronics and didn't even touch an airplane during my entire five years in the Marine Corps, uh, except for my own, you know, keeping them up when I was home on leave and various stuff like that. And uh, But then once I got out, I decided it was time to go ahead and get my IA and start diving back in a little deeper to it. And now, now doing it full time, which is awesome. And I, I've looked at some of the pictures uh, on your website. By the way, it's vansflyingservices.com, and we'll have a link uh, at the podcast. It, it's really cool some of these restorations you've done. And by the way, I love the pictures of you and your, your grandfather uh, and, and yourself. Uh, there's a, a young version and an older version of you. I think that's really cool. And, <laughs> oh, thank uh, you. And uh, Madeline is also in there in the yep. picture. Yep. Uh, and, oh, uh, yeah. She loves it. So I take her with, I let her spend as much time with me as she wants to right now while she still likes me. And, uh, and how old is Madeline? Just turned five last week. <laughs> That's cute. This is definitely a family that flies together. So we've we've moved on from from being passionate about aviation and and getting into flying. But you've you become a mechanic, which I think is really cool. I admire mechanics. I w- I wish I had the time to to get my certificates. Uh, but you started this service. I, I'm assuming it's you that started the Vans Flying Service. Correct. Yeah. And and you. How did you decide to get into antique and vintage aircraft i i'm i'm thinking that there's so many other aircraft to get into i would i would assume there's more money over there you decide to to follow your passion i'm assuming yeah i mean there is more money you know if i could get onto with a flight school and or something like that and be doing all their maintenance but i i enjoy flying 172s and that's what i did my private and most of my commercial in but it's it, it, I, I do it because that's what, I, that's what I enjoy working on. I mean, the dope and fabric, there aren't a lot of people out there that do that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, and the ones that do do it mainly just do it for themselves and don't care to work on other people's just because it is so labor-intensive. Right. And it's, I don't know, it's just what I enjoy, and I like keeping the old stuff flying. Yeah, we appreciate that too. Now, one of the things that you do is you, you don't uh, just restore these aircraft. You're uh, an avid pilot. 
and it uh, looks like a pretty darn good one, and you fly <laughs> a lot of different uh, tail draggers. One of the things that you were involved with recently was taking delivery or taking an aircraft and delivering it to an individual. That's another part of your business. You actually deliver aircraft, correct? Yes. Well, that's awesome. Now, tell us a little bit about this. This, And we're going to talk about some of the other airplanes that you restored. Uh, but you, you delivered this J-5, a Piper J-5A, uh, from Michigan to Dayton and then over to California. And you actually crossed the Continental Divide to do that. Uh, before we talk a little bit about that story, tell us a little something about the J-5, because I think a lot of people don't know what, what is a J-5 and what names uh, does it go by normally. Uh, the J-5, it's a Cub Cruiser. Um, I believe they initially came with a 75 horsepower on the front of them. And over the years, they've upgraded to some of them have 85 and some of them even have 90s on them like this one did. Um, and then from there, it evolved on to, I believe it's the PA-12, the Super Cruiser. Um, honestly, I, th- I think Piper got it right with this airplane. Um, it's, a three pl- it's more or less a three-place Cub. You solo it. You can solo it from the front seat uh, or the rear. You're just limited to your baggage compartment weight if you're soloing from the rear. But the rear seat will actually sit two people. I mean, it's every bit of four feet wide. It seems like it's. You sit back there and you feel like you're sitting in a love seat flying this thing. It's it's nice and comfy. Well, well Matt, wait a minute. I, I'm not so sure there. Two people. How about two people like my size? Uh, I'm I'm a little bit uh, chunkier than most. Um, well, I'm 5'10", about 205 pounds, and my set with, if you take the stick out from the back seat, myself and somebody else my size could fit back there. Um, we wouldn't have the most room, but we wouldn't be too terribly scrunched in back there. <laughs> so Eric Crump and I could probably not get in the back seat of that, I'm assuming, and uh, because of the fact that we're a little, little bit heavier. So I, I don't think the two of us could be able to do that with, with a pilot up front, but it truly is nice and wide in the back. I've I've seen the, these cruisers, and it's uh, just a phenomenal aircraft. Now, tell us just a, a little bit about the restoration. I think you did a little work on it, too, right, before you started flying it? Um, all I did was I did a pre-buy, pre-buy and okay. uh, helped out with the annual inspection on it. Um, the annual was due. So the airplane was originally in Upper Michigan up by Escanaba. And I flew up there on Friday evening. And uh, I did, my flight, of course, you know, didn't get in until 11 o'clock at night. And I met up with the owner the next morning, or the seller. And uh, my, uh, so I did a, a good pre-buy on it, you know, spent a couple hours going over it, making sure that there wasn't anything scary big that was going to make us run away from the airplane. Um, took it around to patch, test flew it for a little bit, and then called the owner, or the buyer, back and gave him my findings. Because one thing I make it a point not to do is I won't make a uh, buy or run recommendation unless things are really bad. So I call the I'll call the my customer back and tell him, hey, you know, here's what I found. Here's kind of my opinion and go from there. And so I told him everything I found and he told me to go ahead and hand over the check and start helping the guy out doing the annual with his mechanics. So that's what we did. And uh, it, it worked out really nice because the mechanic up there, uh, he was a really nice guy, really good guy. And so we got along real well. He started up on the front getting the engine going and I went and started on the wheel bearings, all of the. Oh, the grunt work, you know, that's not that fun, but was able, with two of us going at it, made everything a lot, lot smoother process. So I was able to get all the inspection panels open, and, you know, once I got the wheel bearings all cleaned up, I'd go over and show him, and, hey, here's one signing it off, so take a look at these and make sure they're up to your, up to your specs and so forth. And we spent 
Oh, between I bet it, it was a good ten hours doing the uh, annual inspection on it. So we got a very thorough annual, and I was very comfortable and confident in flying it the distance I was about to. Interesting. You know, I I'd like to talk a little bit more about pre buys, but I think Eric, you had a question. I did. This is from somebody with absolutely no knowledge about anything okay. having to do with fabric airplanes. So, um, great respect for the aircraft, and certainly for the people who who have the knowledge. Um, to make them function. I'm just curious from, from the pilot and the maintenance perspective, um, have you ever come across a fabric project either on, you know, an airplane that you were working on, you know, for yourself or that you were doing for somebody else where you looked at this thing and just went, how in the world does this thing fly? Because, and I, I, and I, let me preface that question. Uh, Obviously growing up around these airplanes and then, you know, Having the A and P and the IA in your pocket, I understand that you definitely have a a, a way deeper knowledge of uh, you know of the mechanics of fabric airplanes. But every time I look at one, especially when I get up close to it, and I can you know when I touch it, my finger goes into it. I'm like, how in the world does this work? It's just, it's fascinating to me. Um, and, and I guess I asked. I just got back from uh, DC last week. I took my wife there on uh, for our anniversary. That's where she wanted to go, and um, Going to D.C. with me is a guaranteed trip through the Air and Space Museum. It, I mean, it must happen. That's a requirement. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm, I'm standing there in front of the right flyer just going, how in the world? Like, what, what were you guys thinking? And uh, when you started talking about fabric airplanes, I just had the same question. So that's a, a really long setup. But at, at what point do you get to that point where you're dealing with maintaining and then flying a fabric-covered airplane where you're like – Okay, I, I get this, and, and I'm, I'm totally confident in this patch I just put on that this wing's not going to come apart on me in flight. Um, it's, a, a lot of it is pressing the I believe button and trusting the manufacturers and the STCs as far as like whether it be Seekonite or Stitz or Randolph or Polyfiber, all those. A lot of it's just knowing the, the amount of effort and studies and engineering that they've put into these products that I can open up their manual, you know, and it'll say, hey, check these things here. And as long as it meets all these criteria, you're good to go. And a lot of it's just that. And honestly, with a lot of it, um, after a while, you can tell walking up to an airplane within the first few minutes of walking around that, yeah, this airplane's good and it's worth looking into more or eh, maybe we ought to think a little bit harder about this. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, thanks. So, I appreciate that. No, yeah, absolutely, and especially with the modern fabrics we have nowadays, the bigger issue isn't so much the fabric over the top of it as it is the stuff underneath of it that hasn't been really seen or inspected really well for the last 20 years or 30 years, however long it's been covered up. So you're saying the fabric will last a lot longer than the ones that we have nowadays? Oh, absolutely. The synthetics, like the polyfiber and the seekonite, yeah, is, you hang them and take good care of them, and they'll last a really long time nowadays. How would you compare it to the way fabric was in the past? I mean, how much longer would it last? Uh, well, I'm uh, flying a 1941 Chief around a little bit right now that was covered in 1978 with seekonite, <laughs> and it's still in, wow. it's in great shape. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's been hangered all its life. It's been really well kept. Uh, they actually rejuvenated the finish on it a couple once back in the early '90s, and it still—it's a great-looking airplane, and still airworthy. I, I've taken my daughter flying in it, so that's how much I trust it. 
you know, along with the fabric and the pre-buy, you know, I've really fallen in love with a lot of fabric aircraft lately. And, and one of the things that I think Eric touched on is, you know, you have to, and you said, you have to push that believe button. Uh, the first time I did aerobatics in a fabric aircraft, I was a little bit scared. I was like, oh my gosh, how's this going to hold together? But, you know, again, you have to trust the engineers, et cetera. Um, it's just, it's an airplane, it's a wing, it's, it's, uh, it's the covering on the wing. Um, Absolutely. But but if I am somebody who's thinking about purchasing, and, and I'm listening right now, and I'm somebody who's thinking about purchasing in a fabric aircraft, what do I need to do differently? You know, what should I do when I'm asking, uh, and a greater question, should I do a pre-buy, first of all? Second of all, who do I need to go towards to get a fabric aircraft into a pre-buy, and, and where do I find somebody? Um, ooh, where to find somebody? Well, I'd turn to the internet, and it's a reasonable distance from Ohio myself, of course, but, <laughs> um, I mean, there's still quite a few people out there that do it. They're, uh, but a lot of them seem to be old-timers nowadays that really don't use the internet quite as well as they could be, and they're okay with that, and they have enough business to keep them more than busy, and fortunately for me, they send me their overflow work or jobs they don't want to do, so. Interesting. But, um, yeah, no, it's, there's still people out there that do it, and um, word of mouth is by far the best way to find somebody that's familiar with fabric and the older airplanes still. It's a whole other world uh, from aluminum, and uh, and you're out there. You know, I can kind of look at an airplane and say, oh, boy, you know, I don't want to buy that one. I've owned, you know, partnerships and aircraft, and uh, getting into something that's uh, that's fabric-covered is kind of scary. You're like, no, what do I do? Where do I start? Um, and And you're looking at this from... From a pre-buy perspective, so let's back up there. You know, why why would I want to do a pre-buy, and would you ever recommend purchasing an aircraft without a pre-buy inspection? Um, purchasing one without a pre-buy, it would depend on who's selling it. Because mm-hmm. um, I have a few friends that are selling airplanes right now and whatnot, and they're friends of my grandpa's that I've known since I was three, four years old, and hope to someday be as good a mechanic as they are. You know, and me doing a pre-buy on an airplane they're trying to sell, for instance, I'd tell the person to save their money and just call and talk to the person and vouch for them that way. But other than that, uh, no, just getting a third or a third set of eyes on it that's completely independent and doesn't care if you do or don't buy the airplane, that goes a long ways. So this, this, this pre-buy inspection that that I've looked at and I've used in the past was pretty much it, it's an annual inspection like you mentioned, and, and that's fairly normal in a pre-buy, correct? Um, yeah, because the, the, the pre-buy, there's actually nothing laid out, so that's whatever the, the potential buyer and the mechanic uh, come, up, come into agreement on. If right. it's just, you know, uh, hey, here's an AD. I did, went back over all the ADs. It's up to date on those. The airplane is actually airworthy, and I don't find anything big. Or if they want me to spend, you know, 12 hours or however long it takes and give it a full-blown annual, then that's something we agree upon. Cool, cool. Well, before we talk about your venture, I think, Rick, you had a, had a question before we move on to his venture. Yeah, request. no, just uh, as we're talking about these, you know, fabric planes, are there um, weather, weather conditions in terms of locations and or places in the country where, where the weather and where the, the, the location is more hard on the plane? I, I just, I, I'm wondering about uh, heat or sun or, I mean, I know you hanger them or whatever, but are there, are there conditions you have to be careful about when you have a fabric um, covered plane? Um, the biggest thing to worry about is moisture getting trapped inside of the fabric and sitting uh-huh. there on the steel tubing, uh-huh. especially if the steel, the steel tubing wasn't protected as well as it could have been with 
uh, like modern epoxy primers and such like that. Okay. Because um, really the only thing, the bit, well, not the only thing, but the biggest thing that is going to degrade the fabric is sunlight. Uh, if you get cracks in the paint and down through the silver to where the sunlight's actually hitting the fabric itself, the UV is what will destroy the fabric the quickest. Okay. So, so reviewing the, 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 the quality of the paint and, and looking for breaks and things like that is just you know, prudent, and then you repair those. And if you stay ahead of that and uh, you know, take care of that, then that's, that's a big part of the game, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I'm, st- I'm still reading the Wright Brothers book, uh, and, and Eric's reference to that is so, so true, um, what, what those guys figured out and how they did it. It's, it's a fascinating story. Oh, absolutely. Fabric's fascinating, and I and it's interesting what you just said, Rick. I think that touches on another point. Does anybody keep their fabric aircraft outside? And uh, is there any way that you could keep it outside without, you know, getting destroying the wings? I guess you could say, or destroying the fabric. Um, some people do keep them outside, of course, and uh, most of the ones I've seen are either in dire need of repair, or um, they actually have like really nice covers over top of the wings and the fuselage and such just to go ahead as an extra measure to keep the sunlight and just the just the abrasives in the air you know they're going to be blown around when the wind picks up and blowing dirt at it and such interesting just to protect it from those interesting and, and just you know on that whole fabric you know discussion i you know i love old warbirds and someone was telling me one nice thing about the fabric is you know bullet holes go right through it <laughs> absolutely <laughs> you know you don't have to worry uh, quite so much about the damage so i thought that that was kind of interesting and and to see certain large aircraft that have fabric covering it is absolutely phenomenal and interesting so uh but matt you know one of the things that, that really fascinated me about this other than the aircraft itself which i think is a really cool airplane uh is moving this aircraft across the country and we kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that because there, we have gosh so many questions about this this journey you took so so let's back up and and you picked up this airplane you did the pre-buy and now you're going across the country you just you know light the fires kick the tires and go i mean how much planning is involved um fortunately i'd been talking to my customer for about the last month month and a half helping him find just the right airplane to meet his mission because he wanted something that would carry him his wife fuel and of course you know a little bit of bags which is a little difficult to find, but um, the nice thing about the J5 is it had no battery, no electrics, no starter, transponder, radio, any of that stuff. So that kept his pe- that kept the airplane empty weight light and left him a decent amount of payload still. So uh, we had it pretty much narrowed down to either that or a Taylor Craft, which I'm of course partial to. But um, we had a we had a couple of Taylor Crafts. One we did a pre buy on, and uh, he ended up passing on. And when it came down to it, he had it narrowed down to the J-5 that was in Mich- Upper Michigan and a Taylor Craft that was up in Maine. And uh, he ended up wanting a J-5 more. So that's the one we ended up going and looking at. And it met all of our requirements. We went ahead and moved forward from there. But uh, the whole time he's talking to me, because uh, he was in, he's in the Air Force, and he actually lived in Dayton when he bought the airplane, but was moving within the next week or two out to Sacramento, California. So that's why we brought it back to Dayton for a few days and then went ahead and took the airplane on out to California. So that whole time, I was just kind of playing around on Sky Vector and looking at different charts and AirNav and everything else just as a fun experience, you know, if nothing else, just a fun, just a fun flight planning lesson so- for myself. 
to understand this correctly, you, you went across country in an aircraft without an electrical system? That's correct. Didn't even have a handheld with me. Really? Yeah. Wow, that, that's pretty, you know, I've heard of somebody doing that before, and I think that's just wild. I mean, it, it's uh, kind of grassroots flying. I, uh, how did you navigate? Um, I had a, when I first got my recreational license in 2000, my grandpa gave me a Garmin 92, um, which was like the second moving map G- Gar- GPS Garmin made, I think. Um, and I, I still have that. It still works. But I had current charts with me that covered the entire way, both north and south pretty much the entire united states with me and i used those all, all the time i knew right where i was at on the chart interesting so it's just a finger on the chart kind of thing absolutely then, well yeah. i mean i had the, GP, right, I had the gps helps. run yeah so as far as some of the places that you had crossed is there any airspace that you had to go through and did you have to make any changes to the aircraft to get through the airspace um no because most most every place i was able to get underneath the shelves uh, one of the most fun ones was coming through the pass into Salt Lake City. When you first come through the pass, because going through the passes, my uh, theory was altitude is life. So I was as high as I could be, whether I needed to or not. But once I came through and came into the flat of Salt Lake City there, I had like a, I want to say it was about two miles wide east to west and probably about eight miles north south before I entered the Salt Lake Class Bravo there where it was zigzag back and forth, getting down to altitude so I could duck under the shelf and get into Salt Lake City South Airport there. So you had a transponder? No. No, that's why I, was, I had to stay <laughs> under the shelf. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, I'm <laughs> sitting here. Cr- yeah. These are the things that you don't think about, you know, when, when you're, right. you have an aircraft that has electricity in it. But uh, yeah. now, but Rick, I mean. It, uh, yeah, I was up. You, I was, well, I was just going to say I was up with a friend of mine. We were flying along, and, and I just I said to him, he was he was flying, and I was enjoying the view. And I said, "Who are we talking to?" He goes, "Nobody." <laughs> and you know, now he did have he did have a radio, but we weren't really you know he wasn't really interested in using it. And he didn't need to because of the where he was, and you know. So, but it's funny, and that and then it's when it dawned on me, wow, that's you know we can do that. I know there's a guy who fl- who flew um, who flew to a meetup we did in Nashua from New Hampshire somewhere in a Cub with no electrical and. Um, he, you know, it, it was, it was, it was cool. And he, he, he got their attention on the ground before departure to, to get, you know, to, to, to get clearance, I guess, to take off. I mean, there was a whole lot of, it just, it baffled us, but, but it's very cool. It is awesome. You know, I, I have like all sorts of like four different radios on the plane. I fly for work and all these other communication devices. You know how much I would love to just turn all that stuff off. And, and th- this is kind of like a dream flight here. So, um, but but continue on with with your story as far as going through the pass. Well, go ahead. And I, I'm I, sorry. I, I, I read about one of the stories, which was the uh, a little bit of confusion with a 172 at an airport, and that probably was also because you were doing what you thought was right, but without talking to that other plane, they weren't paying enough attention to you. It sounds like. But anyway, we can talk about that some other time if you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm game whenever. <laughs> yeah, no, no, definitely. That that sounds kind of interesting. Uh, so explain that. What, what what was Rick talking about? Um, it was actually. Let me pull up the airport name here. Uh, it was Oroville, California, and let's see. The airport name was okay. Oroville Municipal. Um, there's a TFR around the air around Beale Air Force Base that pretty much encompasses the Class C airspace around them. And uh, I knew that was there, so I went ahead and landed there just so I could call 1-800-WX-BRIEF just so 
if nothing else, they had my N number on file and they knew that I knew about the TFR and everything else in case I ended up, you know, accidentally busting it or they thought I did and I had an F-16 off my wingtip for whatever reason. So I, that way I did my due diligence. But um, I was landing there and so I overflew the airport, you know, about 1,000 feet above pattern altitude and I saw the 172. So I did a descending teardrop and entered on a left downwind behind him and kept my distance because I'm going 20 knots slower than him or so at cruise. <laughs> And let him, gave him good space, you know, and he touched down and was rolling out as I was turning on to final. And well, I was about, oh, I, I was in the flare as I see him. I was expecting him to roll on down, which it was a six, 7,000 foot runway. So it was a non-event. But instead of taxiing on down to the next taxiway and turning off, he turned around and back taxied and, <laughs> until he saw me, in which case he did a hasty 180. But I made the second turn off and. It was it was a non-event. We were never more than right. half a runway apart. But but it occurred to me when you were talking about not having a radio that that that's a moment where you know you you're trying you're trying to you know play by the rules and 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 you know have situational awareness. And if if someone else who has a radio assumes everyone has a radio and hasn't heard anything, then they make different decisions. And it's interesting for those of us who do fly regularly with radios to just keep that in mind. Oh, absolutely. I know. Um, one of my flight instructors had just recently retired up here in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, every now and again, you know, you'd hear somebody call a base and then somebody else call number two for landing on downwind. And he'd be like, well, how do they know they're number two? Is there a cub in between him that's not on a radio or anything that he doesn't see? And it's like, well, you know, he's got a good point there. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and there's a lot of airplanes out there, a lot of people that don't talk on the radio. So you oh, know, absolutely. always, always keep your ears, uh, you know, or eyes open. That's for sure. Yes. It, there's people that fly that, that can't hear. You know, there's people that are deaf that fly. So uh, they obviously don't use the radio. So it's really important to keep your eyes outside. And I think that that's a good example as to why. Um, but, you know, one thing that keeps going in the back of my head, I'm like, wait a minute. You, you flew across all these mountains. Uh, how much experience do you have flying across mountains? And did you get help from somebody to, to actually pass through the Continental Divide? Uh, well, prior to that, I actually had no mountain experience. Um, fortunate, uh, I had a few things working in my favor, though. Um, I'm used to flying old, underpowered airplanes, which isn't the same as density altitude, of course, but it makes you fly the airplane just like density altitude does. And also, uh, we have a guy out here who works for a company flying airplanes all over the country and actually the world. So I, I had a good couple-hour conversation with him. And uh, last fall, I made a contact out here who uh, him and his brother own a Stinson, and I believe they just sold a 195, Cessna 195. But he lives in Utah and learned to fly out there and everything else. So I called him up and spoke of him for a couple hours, and he gave me some great pointers. Um, I, I think the, big, the best pointer he gave me was for my first few out landings at density altitude to make wheel landings. Uh, just because, you know, your airspeed might be saying 60, 70, but you're still going across the ground like your airspeed would be saying 75, 80 here down at 1,000 foot like I am here in Ohio right now. And that way, you know, it doesn't feel quite as foreign until for it help you get used to it that way. And I followed his advice and about half my wheel, about half my landings going out that way were all wheel landings. And it was, uh, it was pretty much a non-event. And I really don't want to that sound like I'm downplaying it by any means because I got absolutely lucky and I do realize just how lucky I was with the weather out there. 
Um, I think there was only twice where I had winds that were over 10, 15 mile an hour, like the entire trip through the mountain passes, everything. So I got the weather just couldn't have been better. Um, You hit some, yeah, rain, you hit, you had some rain here and there that you dodged. Yeah. Um, had to, had to put down because of, yeah. Uh, let's see. I was, I ended up in Lachlove, Nevada. Um, the airport just prior, it was one of those deals where it's like, you know, I had a decent, I was making good speed. I had the fuel to make lock love and then back or to the next airport if I needed to. Cause I always make sure to leave myself, uh, uh, at least one or two ways, ways out if possible. And, uh, so I was like, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and overfly this and head to lock love. They have self-service fuel there and I'll get fuel there and then head on down to Tahoe, which was my going to be my next stop. And as I got down that way, the thunderstorm started rolling in, and oh, I got bounced all to heck. And I was like, you know, I'm going to give this another minute or two, and if it gets worse, I'm going to turn around and go back. But I ended up going on to Lock Love, and they had a couple of different runways there, so the crosswind wasn't hardly an issue at all. And it's like, well, the thunderstorm's rolling in, so I chained the airplane down about noon and uh, went inside and texted my customer and my wife because I'd always text both of them. Since, you know, I didn't have a PLB or a 406 ELT or anything like that, it'd be, hey, here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm going. I expect flight time to be this. I have this much gas on me. So don't worry for five hours. And I ended up uh, having to stay in Lock Club because I was right there on the edge of the thunderstorms. Um, I actually posted on a website, Backcountry Pilots, and I was like, hey, guys, uh, here's where I'm at. I'm looking at the Lake Tahoe Pass for in the morning following I-80 the rest of the way. Is there a better route that I'm missing? And one of the guys said, yeah, I followed the railroad tracks north out of Salt Lake City, and I believe it's the Feather River Pass that I ended up taking. And it was actually 2,000 feet lower, which was good because Truckee was fogged in the next morning in the valley. Wow. Yeah, follow, I follow roads, IFR. <laughs> Your flight was just under 30 hours, I believe. How did you choose um, what airports you wanted to stop at, and how often did you stop? Um, well, when I planned the flight out, I have the airplane carried about four hours of gas total endurance. Um, I made sure that where whatever airport I stopped at had 24-hour fuel available, because you'd be surprised once you get out west uh, how many airports don't have that. And they're also an eight to five Monday through Friday only attendance. Um, but I made sure I had enough air, had enough fuel to get to an airport that had 24 hour service. And then if need be, whether the winds were just, you know, 40 mile an hour blowing 70 crosswind that I could make it to another airport, whether it be ahead or backtracking and have fuel to spare as well to make it there someplace. So I made sure to always leave myself an out like that. And so that ended up leaving me about two hour legs and, uh, but also on a trip like that, you got to do a lot of it kind of by the seat of your pants. And I was fortunate enough to make better speed than I anticipated most of the way. So I was able to stretch a lot of those legs out and fly further legs than I initially expected without being, without taking too much more time or sacrificing any of my other options. You know, what's fascinating, you know, is what, adding to what Vic said is how you, in, you brought in other people into your flight, it seems. Uh, I've kind of been counting about three or four people, but I'm sure there was more. In other words, you got on the Internet, uh, you got on a forum, you talked to people. How many people do you think helped you uh, along the way as you're moving from uh, Ohio across the country? Oh, I, I bet it was upwards of a dozen. A dozen people? Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting how you know this this flying is truly a, a social event. We can't just rely on ourselves. You know, there there's so many other people that do get involved, especially when you're doing something brand new uh, like this. And I tell you, it's pretty gutsy. <laughs> um, I, I guess a little bit, but I'd done enough research, and uh, from all the people I talked to that had you know gobs more experience than me and had been doing it for much longer than myself. I felt I felt quite confident, and I also know my limits and when I needed to stop and you know just say, "Hey, I'm done for the day." It it also sounds like if if I you know yeah experience, careful planning, you know you had some safety measures in place in terms of communication with with uh, family and so that there were people who knew you know what was happening, um, and you know you bite off a little bit every time, right? And if you're ever in a position to not go further, you make the safe move and you wait. So Absolutely. My, my guess is that the, it's, it's in, in the totality, it's a, it's, it is impressive and it's pretty cool. And I sure haven't done it. But I also know that for someone in your position who has that much experience, you probably go, I'll take it a day at a time or an airport hop at a time or whatever. Um, and, you got, and you got to go straight on through pretty much with a few little, few small bumps. But mostly, it sounds like you had a, you had a wonderful trip, perfect weather and, and you know, made all good decisions. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, yeah. it's. When it, when it comes down to it, it's really no more than a two and a half hour leg at a time. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, I really tried to minimize my time on the ground just because my I was only doing, um, I was averaging about 85 to 90 mile an hour was, was pretty much my average. So, you know, an hour on the ground every two hours really adds up throughout the day. But um, But each time, you know, most all airports nowadays have, uh, weather planning inside. So it'd be a run in, check the weather right quick. All right. It, it looks just like it does out here and no big surprises there. And if it does, you know, I have a map and a GPS and I can find my way somewhere else to where I can land and tie down if I need to. Did you, did you bring along a, a tent? Um, I actually did not take a tent on that trip. I normally do, but uh, I wanted to be as light as I could going over the mountains. So I just I opted to leave the tent behind. I had my sleeping bag with me and a little tarp. So if I needed to, I would have, I could have stayed dry and somewhat warm. <laughs> you didn't have to do that though, did you? No, I, I did not. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me let's have, let let me just ask that. So basically, would you say you had any kind of, you know, emergency stuff that had you had to land or ditch or something? You know, I, I've forgotten. Did you have anything with you other than the sleeping bag? Um, like, I had my sleeping bag, a lighter, and a pocket knife. Yeah, and a, no, no, no beacon of any kind. No, no, G, well, no locator. The had the ELT in it. Okay. I had my cell phone. Uh, and okay. well, I had a, I had a four flight with Stratus as well, so that helped yeah, a little okay. bit. Yeah. Okay. you know, there are people who, who making that flight would not load up for weight reasons, but load up with some technology and some things, so that if you had to be in the wilderness for a while, you could do it. So. Yeah, well, so that was, one of the. That's one of the probably other a things brief. I did was I followed I-80 almost the entire way as well. Oh, okay. Just that way, you know, I never was terribly far from civilization. Right, right. That's cool. Yeah, a yellow plane on a highway would probably get attention then. So, so Oh, I would yeah. imagine. <laughs> but I'm sure, too, that the confidence of having your background in the military, that helped a little. You know, you probably mm -hmm. only need a pocket knife to live for a few days <laughs> for, with, with your, your training and background. But, uh, you know, what's really neat about the end of your trip, you know, as, as we, we kind of close up the, the actual trip portion of it, is what, what happened at the end? What did you feel like when you, when you delivered this aircraft to this individual? What, what was it like? You know, tell us a little bit about what happened and also what you felt like. Um, 
honestly, it was great. It was it was a real feeling of accomplishment. I mean, it was. I'm not the first person, and won't be the last person to do it. You know what I mean? By by any means, but I don't know. It it was it, it was a really great feeling. Just kind of wow, I did something because there was a couple times, you know, during the trip where it's like, man, I've been flying for nine hours today. I just want to stop. But one of my one of my buddies told me he's like, dude, he's like, you're you're gonna feel like that a couple times. He's like. Just think of the stories you'll have when you're done and how you'll look back on it and be like, wow, that really was a, a great trip. And he was right on with that. <laughs> Anything scary happen during the trip? Um, really scary? Nothing terribly scary. Uh, when I was in Rollins, Wyoming, I believe it was, uh, that was my first serious encounter with density altitude because the airport itself sat 7,500 MSL. And then it was... Uh, Oh, man, 80, 85 degree. I want to say the density altitude up there was 10, 5, 11,000 feet up in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the airplane got off the ground surprisingly quick. Now, once it got off the ground, it was a different story. <laughs> but it was, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, if I'm not 200 feet by the middle of the runway, I forget how long the runway was, but it was, it was plenty more than I needed. It was like, you know, I'll go ahead and set back down. And the environment around it was... Uh, the city was actually behind me, and out in front of me was nothing but open desert and gentle sloping mountainside. So I wasn't terribly worried should something have happened, I had to set back down. Um, so I, I really had to take my time and concentrate on flying the airplane there to get up enough altitude to continue on and make the pass. And I made sure to stay, you know, close to the airport. That way, if, if I decided, you know, this just isn't fine anymore, we're going to land and wait until 5 or 6 o'clock this evening when it starts cooling off, I could have. Interesting. But that was, uh, yeah, I mean, that was really the the worst part of the trip. So would you do it again? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> wow. And that, that's, a, that's a long journey, a lot of money, and uh, I guess it's, it's worth it just to have the stories to tell your friends and to tell us, which we really appreciate, and, uh, and some pictures. By the way, do you have any pictures uh, and videos that maybe we could share uh, on the episode? Um, yeah, I got some on my website there, and I can uh, send you some cool. as well if you'd like. Awesome. We'll we'll definitely do that and place that in the episode. Uh, this has been an amazing story as far as, as flying across the country in the J five. But you know, you, at at Vans Flying Services, you you do a lot more. You, uh, you we talked a little bit about military aircraft. You actually are involved or have been involved in a military aircraft, and that was uh, was it the L three? Was that correct? Yeah, it was an Aronka L three. I picked up in Texas back in March and brought back up here to Dayton, Ohio, and I still do all the maintenance on it and. Talk to the owners pretty much weekly. They're friends of mine. So awesome. They, now, in in these aircraft that that you're working with, are you looking? You know, what are your goals? Where are you going next uh, with with what you're doing with with Vans Flying Services? Um, well, my goal is to get out of my day job because I work during the day at GE Aviation testing jet engines out there. But uh, my my goal is to get away from that and be able to just do the Vans Flying Services on the side. I'm hoping to have my Multi finished up here in the next couple weeks and my uh, CFI finished up here in the next, hopefully, month or two. And looking to, I don't know, one day here, probably be next spring or summer, pick up a a Champ or a Sertabria of the likes and start doing some tailwheel endorsements here in the Dayton area and make a full-time go at it. Well, you know, maybe I should come out and and get my tailwheel endorsement from you. It sounds like you have a few hours. Oh, absolutely. Come <laughs> on out. <laughs> but it, it, I tell you that I just really would say 
to you, definitely do that. I mean, you have so many stories to, to, to put forth. But backing up, I, I think you said something, you test engines at GE Aircraft? Yes. What, what yeah, you- I work in a development test. So all the stuff that's being certified right now is uh, what we hook up back in the test cells. And the engineers, you know, will give us a test sheet saying do these kind of runs or do this many starts and shutdowns on it and so forth and run them that way. Interesting, and so and you collect this data, and then you send it over to the engineers, and and yep. uh, oh wow, that that sounds actually pretty cool. I, yeah, it, it's really neat. We get we get a few military engines as well, some of the legacy stuff, so we get to see some full afterburner occasional and stuff like that. So it's neat. Awesome, awesome. Uh, but you know, as, as far as as I think this is a neat service that you're doing. I love your logo, by the way. Uh, it kind of oh, it's, it's a little retro. I don't know if you made that yourself, but. Uh, I, I definitely think you should sell as a patch. I want to. I want to get. A, I want to get a hat with that patch on it. I think that's really cool. And say I. I've Flans Flying Service. I. You know. And they're like, what's Vans? Oh, so it's an aircraft service company that that delivers old vintage aircraft and, uh, you know, and, and restores antique and vintage aircraft. And like, oh wow. And then you tell the story about what you did across country. Uh, oh, I'd absolutely. Love to do that. Uh, and where can people find you, by the way, on the internet? I don't know if we actually mentioned that. Where can they find you on the internet if they want to, you know, need help uh, pre-buy or to deliver an aircraft? Uh, I'm at vansflyingservices.com, and I'm also uh, vansflyingservices on Facebook. Cool, cool. And, oh, I got to put that on there. Vans Flying Service on Facebook. I definitely want to check that out. You know, this has been great having you here. But uh, I'd like to, you know, summarize what you've done because I think there's people that are that are listening to this right now saying you know you sound very confident in what you've done and it sounds like uh, well you it's I just did this on a whim almost but it's not true I mean you did you did some planning and you have a lot of experience uh, what would you suggest to somebody who's thinking about doing this type of a thing of crossing the country in a, in a small aircraft especially one that doesn't have electricity um do, do your research ahead of time, uh, like I said, because a lot of airports out there don't have 24-hour fuel available. Um, leave yourself an out, and don't be on too strict of a time schedule. I mean, of course, you know, set a goal that, hey, I'd like to make it here today, but if you don't make it there today, that's fine, too. If you make it farther, even better. But sometimes making it farther isn't always better also. <laughs> <laughs> That's some great advice, and we're, we're going to close with that advice. I really appreciate your coming here. We, guess we, we could talk for another hour about all the different aircraft you have at, at Vans and the things that you've restored, and we'd, we'd love to keep in touch. If people have questions, uh, can they forward or can we forward those emails to you? Do you mind that? Oh, no, absolutely. Feel free to. Cool, cool. So if you go to the Aviation, excuse me, and Stuck My Gavcast, go to the uh, contacts page. We'll, we'll actually forward some of those questions to you. The After Landing Checklist. Well, I, I tell you, this has been really an awesome story, and uh, I, it makes me start to dream about doing something like that. And I, I love the little the picture of the small airplane on the on the uh, front of your web page there, and it makes me dream about someday just getting out and having the freedom to just fly across country and and, and not have to worry about talking on the radio and uh, and just just being part of the airplane and and following roads and following the earth. And not have to worry about GPS and talking to air traffic control and, and filing IFR, et cetera. And it's it's not something that everybody gets to do all the time. But I think I think it's it's awesome. Well, gosh, you know, I I appreciate your being here, Matt, and we really in, enjoyed the story. Uh, and also, before you go, uh, one more time, 
how can they get in touch with you and where's your website? Uh, bandsflyingservices.com. My email and phone number are both there. So if you got any questions, feel free to shoot me an email or and I'll help you out however I can. Cool. And myself, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Expert Aviator, also at Stuck Mike Avcast. You can uh, contact us here and we'll just go through other, other people's. Uh, Rick, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, RFLT on Twitter is probably the best. RFLT on Twitter. And Eric Crump? See Eric Go, S E E E R I C G O, on the Twitter. Awesome. Sean? I am at Aviation on Twitter. It's A V I A S E A N. And Victoria, where can they find you? Uh, you can get me on Twitter. That goes right to my phone. It's at ToriaFly. Awesome, awesome. And folks, for myself and uh, Victoria, Sean, Eric, Rick, and also Matt, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next episode. And hey, if you're thinking about flying across country, there's somebody you can speak to. Listen to his story that we've, we've done here today. Also read about it online at Vans Flying Services. We'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.